This morning's message is entitled, God's Love Forgives. God's Love Forgives. The New Testament, with one minor exception, uses two primary words for the word forgiveness. Haritzomai and afiamai. And the, the third one is basically a derivative of the last one, afiamai. And so we find this in Colossians 2.13 of Harisamai. It says, And you being dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven, Harisamai, you all your trespasses. And this is what this is defined as in the Complete Word Study Dictionary. The most common meaning to Harisamai is peculiar to the New Testament is to pardon, to graciously remit a person's sin. The Strong's Greek Dictionary of the New Testament phrases it this way. It's a verb which means to bestow a favor unconditionally and is used of the act of forgiveness, whether divine or human. So what's implied here then is the idea of an unconditional favor or pardon. And there are going to be some instances in which I may be misunderstood, but just follow me all the way to the end before you render any conclusions. This is something you have to build upon because this is a very complicated topic. But here's the point. Jesus takes the condemnation that we deserves and pardons us. There are many instances in which Jesus offers pardon or pardon is offered before a full confession is made or before confession is made at all. Uh, Adam and Eve are covered before there's a complete understanding and a repentance of sin. They're making all kinds of excuses why it's everybody else's fault and not theirs. Moses interceding for the people of Israel. And in this situation, Moses says, Lord, please forgive these people. And God honors Moses' request without the people saying a word. Jesus forgiving a paralytic in Matthew chapter 9. He says, sons, your sins are forgiven you. And he tells them to rise. And the man said nothing beforehand. Jesus, the biggest one is found in Matthew chapter 27. Jesus praying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We were not confessing at that time. Jesus forgiving Peter before he confessed in John chapter 21. Stephen is a type of Christ praying forgive them in Acts chapter 7, very similar to what Jesus did in Matthew 27. Uh, We're told in 2 Corinthians 5.19 that God was in Christ reconciling the world, not imputing their trespasses against them before many of us saw our need. Then in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, while we are still sinners, Christ dies for the ungodly. Many examples, many more could be marshaled, but there's some tension here. For many of us, and, and could be that God would take this type of step before we do things. The other instances in which this word heritzomai is used in the New Testament, every single one of them outside of Colossians 2.13, are dealing with interpersonal interactions where forgiveness is given before those people confess. Luke 7, 2 Corinthians 2, Ephesians 4, and Colossians 3. All of my slides for all the presentations and the audio will be given to GYC Northwest, so you can actually go through these texts and stuff later. So we forgive because we love, and it's impossible to love a sinner without forgiveness. And Elway says it this way, Christ tells us that we must forgive the erring uh, even 70 times 7, and how infinitely greater is the love of God than is our love. So this first phase of forgiveness that's alluded to in Colossians is what drives us to the second phase of forgiveness. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 says that the goodness of God leads to to repentance. Ellen White even talks about this, that it's only through Christ that true repentance can be genuine, and she actually explains some of that process in other places as well. We see another situation where Peter encounters the undeserved supernatural goodness of God, right? He's in a boat. Jesus is there teaching from his boat. Jesus says, cast your net on the other side. He says, look, I've been fishing all night. I do this for a living, but if you say so, I'm going to do it. 
And when he does, they bring in so many fish that they fill two boats full. And Peter falls on his knees and says, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. He encountered undeserved goodness, which led him to repentance. You with me? Okay, that's Luke chapter 5. So the second is aphiamine. And the root words are from and to send forth. And so it means to send forth from or to send away from, implying that there's a separation between two parties, which is good news because this is actually found in 1 John 1, 9, which some of us may be thinking about right now. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to separate us from our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there are two types of forgiveness mentioned here then. One speaks of pardon and the other speaks of cleansing and separating from sin. We see this framework actually laid out very similarly in the Old Testament in the Old Testament system with the sanctuary service. They had the daily services and the yearly services. One was offering pardon and the other was separating the sinner from the sin and cleansing the tabernacle and the camp. Right? Two phases of forgiveness taking place in the sanctuary economy, which was teaching about how heaven does life, right? Paul talks about this in Hebrews. And in fact, even the morning and evening sacrifices took place in the sanctuary service, and those didn't actually involve confession, right? Those were for the sins of the people that they did not know that they had done. They were to cover the unknown sins of the people, and the point was God was making it clear, I'm working on your behalf, but the people weren't even aware of what was happening. And this was intended for those sins committed in ignorance. But there's a huge, huge, huge disclaimer here. We are not mentioning this to discourage confession. That's not the point we're making this morning. In fact, it should lead to the opposite result, like it did for Peter. The goodness of God should lead you to repentance. So if you want to be separated from sin itself, it's going to require confession. Are you with me? You encounter goodness which leads to confession. That's the point. The Israelites were reminded every morning and evening that God was working for them. Just imagine, the way that the tabernacle system was set up was there was a tent in the middle, the tabernacle, and then you lived on the north, the south, the east, and the west. And every single morning at the same time, and every single evening at the same time, you looked from your tent and you saw that God was working on your behalf. Whether you deserved it or not, whether you did anything right or not, whether you confessed the sins you didn't know you had committed or not, God was working on your behalf. It was meant to be a continual reminder to them that God is for me, not against me. And this would lead them to forsake anything that would pull them away from him. Are you with me? So this is not teaching sin doesn't matter, confession doesn't matter. It matters a whole lot. It cost the life of Jesus. It put the, the fellowship of the Godhead in jeopardy. But it's this thing first, the goodness of God first, that leads you to genuine repentance and a repentance that doesn't need to be repented of. So what the Bible is making clear is that the process of salvation, it begins with God and not you. That's what this teaches. He takes the first step in pursuing and redeeming us. And this is what leads to our response of confession and the forsaking of sin. Both of these phases of forgiveness are absolutely vital for us to have a balanced view of salvation. If we just focus on a fiamai and getting sin out of my life, it can lead to legalism and a lack of assurance or belief that God actually wants me or will accept me. And if we just focus on haritzamai, it's going to lead us to believe that we don't have to do anything. You with me? This is why they use both words and teach both principles of forgiveness in the New Testament, because without which you become incredibly imbalanced. The gospel should have both components to it. We talked about this the other day, that there's a sense of acceptance and accountability. But the sacrifice of Christ is so powerful and all-encompassing that no soul has been left unaffected. Not a single soul. 
We'll walk through some texts on this. First John 2, 2. And Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of who? The whole world. Romans chapter 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned. How many have sinned? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, all being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 5, verses 6, and also verse 8. For when we were still without strength, in due time, what did Christ do? He died for who? The ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ chose to, to die for you and for me. 1 Timothy 4.10 says, For to this we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of how many men? All men, and especially of those who believe. So this is what Ellen White says on this. She says, it's difficult for the reason to grasp the majesty of Christ and the mystery of redemption. Is that true? Yeah, the gospel seems to be too good to be true. It's not. It's too true to be ignored. But we're tempted to believe it's too good to be true. And we wrestle with this. Why would God do this for me? I don't deserve this. There's no way that could actually be true. Certainly, there's a whole lot more that needs to happen outside of the way that Jesus works. It doesn't make sense to us. The shameful cross has been upraised, the nails have been driven through his hands and feet, and the cruel spear has pierced to his heart, and the redemption price has been paid for who? The entire human race, she says. She says this in the Signs of the Times. The whole world was gathered in the embrace of Christ. He died on the cross to give the death stroke to Satan and to take away the sin of every believing soul, and he calls, that's the second part, right? The Ephemai. And he calls upon us to offer ourselves on the altar of service, a living, consuming sacrifice. We are to make an unreserved surrender to God of all that we have and all that we are. And we cannot shirk from that. The gospel requires no less. It's it's the, the best offering we could give to God. A thank offering of our life in complete service and devotion. But the only thing that will lead me to want to do that is first encountering the Haritzamai. The undeserved goodness of God. Romans chapter 5 and verse 18, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, which we all deserve. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to how many? To all men, resulting in justification of life. And this is powerful. The idea of justification of life. Whenever we had the Agape Feast the other day, uh, two nights ago, on that scroll was a quote from Desire of Ages that actually alludes to this. Powerful quote from Ella White. She says, to the death of Christ, we owe even this earthly life. Literally, the death of Jesus and taking our condemnation is what justifies any human being being alive right now. Why? To be given a probationary period to respond to the faith of Jesus. So that even the wicked are allowed to live right now, even though Adam sinned, to respond to the gospel. The bread we eat is the purchase of his broken body. The water we drink is bought by his spilled blood. Never one saint or sinner eats his daily food, but he is nourished by the body and the blood of Christ. The cross of Calvary is stamped on every loaf, and it's reflected in every water spring. Isn't that amazing? Christ, she says it in another place in education, Christ is the light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. John 1, 9. As through Christ, every human being has life. So also through him, every soul receives some ray of divine light. We're told that it rains on the wicked and the just, right? 
not only intellectual, but spiritual power, a perception of right, a desire for goodness exists in every heart. Even that infrastructure every human being has, they may not respond to it, they may not exercise it, but it's given them for God or from God. Desire of Ages says this, the prayer of Christ for his enemies, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing, embraces who? The entire world. It took in every sinner that had lived or should live from the beginning of the world to the end of time. Upon all rests the guilt of crucifying the Son of God. And we can't run from that. I individually am responsible for the death of Jesus. My sins killed Jesus. Say that with me. My sins killed Jesus. That's the truth. And you can't run from that. It's the truth as it is in Jesus. We need a Savior and we have a Savior. And we are living on borrowed time through justification of life to respond to the Savior and the undeserved goodness of God. And so it says, Upon their all rest the guilt of crucifying the Son of God, and to all forgiveness is freely offered. For whoever, whosoever will may have peace with God and inherit eternal life. This payment was paid in full, and you can't change that. Jesus cannot undie for you because you don't appreciate it. That can't be undone. But what we can do is reject it and refuse to receive it. Now, to be very, very, very clear this morning, we are not saying that no one will be lost. I've never said that and never would say that. Scripture is clear that many, unfortunately, will be lost. But what we are saying is the cross of Christ and the love of God are so powerful that no one should be lost. Not a single soul should have been lost. If someone is lost at the end of the day, it's not because Jesus didn't do enough. Are you with me? And that's the point that God makes. His sacrifice was so sufficient as to encompass all of humanity. And this even justifies the current existence of the lost along with the saved to give them a probationary period to respond to the faith of Jesus. But no one could respond to the cross and be justified by faith unless they were first receiving the justification of life which is why we have both, and why we're called to respond with the justification by faith. We're not currently enduring the condemnation we deserve because of the grace of Christ. And so the big variable in the equation in our response to this grand display of, is our response to this grand display of God's love and pardon. Will you accept the gospel, or will you continue to reject his pleadings through his Holy Spirit to bring us home? Will you reject the Spirit of God? Will you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit and his attempts to win you and sweep you into that heavenly tide? We'll close with this thought. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're told that what is it that compels us? You don't sound convinced. It's okay, it's in the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. What is it that compels us? What drives us? The love of Christ compels us. Why? Because we judge thus, that if one died for how many? For all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live how? Hey, we talked about this, didn't we? The law of God and the way that he did life, it was the glory of God to give, right? It was the glory of God to give. So he died so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So whenever we encounter the Haritzamai, the undeserved goodness of God, it should lead to a response. It deserves a response. It compels us to respond. Why would someone fight this, right? Continuing. Therefore, from now on, how do we regard people according to the flesh? How many people do we regard according to the flesh? 
No, but it should change the way that you do life. When you encounter the goodness, the undeserved goodness of God towards you, it should lead you to show undeserved goodness to the people around you. We forgive because we first were forgiven. It should lead to a whole transformation of the life. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, right? We're no longer looking at people for what we can get out of them. We're looking at people for what we can give for them. And it says, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, we just know him no longer, right? Many of us will come to Christ with selfish ambitions, but the beautiful thing is he meets us where we are and he doesn't leave us there. Amen. Amen. He sanctifies our ambitions. He transforms our desires and leads us to think about his desires and no longer ours. And so therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what happens? He becomes a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. God has reconciled us and drawn us back to him through the undeserved goodness displayed by the death of Jesus. And he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. This is not something that we should be keeping to ourselves. It's something that we should be giving freely to the people around us and communicating this beauty to the people around us. Through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, that God was where? In Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. And so now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, and we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. When God has been this good to you, why would you not allow yourself to be reconciled to him? For he made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. He bore the condemnation for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And this is amazing, guys, because Jesus became everything that you have done so that you could become everything that he has done. He literally has paid the full and complete price for your sins. And if you understand the difference between shame and guilt, this verse takes on even greater power. Because guilt is that I've done something wrong, and that's healthy. We need guilt in our lives in that sense. We need that and reminder. This is why the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, right? Of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Not to push us away from Jesus, but to point us to the answer to our sin. The whole point of conviction is to lead you to Jesus who died for your sins, Right? And so we're not, and so guilt is that I've done something wrong. Shame is that I am something wrong. And many of us wrestle with shame, don't we? I'm nothing but an addict. I'm nothing but a loser. I'm nothing but a sinner. I'll never change. I'll never grow. I'll never improve. But that's not the way that God views us. The Bible literally says that God became, or Jesus became what you have done so that you don't have to define yourself by that anymore. He now has defined himself by what you did, so you now can be defined by what he has done. This is the beauty of the gospel, and this is what God wants for you, but will you respond with a reciprocating faith, or will you fight the gospel? Okay, there's a good example in John chapter 8. We've covered this woman a few times. She's become famous this week, hasn't she? John chapter 8, let's go there. John chapter 8, 1 through 11, we're almost done. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him. And as he sat down and taught them, then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. 
Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? This they said, testing him, that he might that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he didn't hear. Certainly he did, though. Verse 7, so when, he had con- when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. This woman here encountered the Haritzamai, which led to the Ephiamai. He pardons her, and then he separates her from her sin. She encountered both pardon and cleansing. Amen? Amen. And if Jesus can do that for this woman, I think Jesus can do it for me. But listen to what Ella White says about the chain of events and how this process works. There's a chronology here, and don't miss this. The woman had stood before Jesus, cowering with fear. His words, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone, had come to her as a death sentence. She dared not lift her eyes to the Savior's face, but silently awaited her doom. And in astonishment, she saw her accusers depart, speechless and confounded. Then these words of hope fell upon her ear, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. This happens first. Her heart was melted, and casting herself at the feet of Jesus, she sobbed out her grateful love, and with bitter tears, what did she do? She confessed her sins. This was the beginning of a new life, a life of purity and peace devoted to God. This chain of events does not lead to somebody living a life filled with sin and what people refer to as cheap grace. There's no such thing as cheap grace. It's expensive. Immensely expensive. The death of Jesus was not something that was cheap. And when we encounter the undeserved goodness of God, it leads to the logical response of repentance. This woman understood this. She encountered it. Ella White explains it exactly the same way. What Jesus is telling her is to walk in the reality that he's already made available to her. When he tells her to go and sin no more, he's not telling her to do something in her own strength. Right? Ellen White talks about this multiple times, that in the command itself is the power to walk in the command. She says all his biddings are enablings. Which means that we should never be afraid of the commandments of God. We should never be afraid of the call of God. Because in the call and in the command is the power to walk in it. So when Jesus tells the paralytic in John chapter 5 to rise, take up your mat, and walk, the paralytic had a decision to make. Will I believe what I believe about the gospel? Or will I believe what Jesus believes about the gospel? That when he pronounces justification and healing, it's true. It's already done. And when Jesus tells me to walk, it's already done. And so what does he do? He chooses to believe the word of Jesus. He defies the laws of physics. He chooses to believe what Jesus says in spite of what he feels or sees. And the man walks. Do you believe that today? 
do you believe that in the word is the power to transform the life and with every command? So when Jesus tells her, go and sin no more, he's not adding an additional impossible weight on this woman's shoulders. He's giving her a promise of the provision that's already been made. Go and sin no more. I've already set you free. You already have power to walk in it. Will you receive the faith of Jesus and live out the faith of Jesus? She could now go and sin no more because she understood that she was accepted by the fact that she was not condemned. I was reading this this morning in Micah. Who was a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgressions of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So notice, we encounter pardon, haritzamai, and then he casts our sins in the depths of the sea. He separates us from our sins, afiamai. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. So here's the point, guys. In the life, death, burial, resurrection, and intercessory mission, ministry of Christ, complete pardon and complete cleansing and separation from sin is afforded. Full stop. No expense was spared for your redemption. Amen? Amen. No expense. So my encouragement to you and my appeal to you today is to receive and to walk in the reality of the faith of Jesus. Amen. Believe what Jesus believes about you and walk in that truth. It'll change your life, guys. It's not, oh man, I hope I can get victory. It's already yours. Walk in the provision he's already made. Walk in the victory he's already secured. He's not asking you to work harder. He's asking you to receive the victory that's already yours. It's already accomplished in the goodness of Jesus. Jesus doesn't need to leave an additional righteous life to empower you to overcome. He already lived that life. And it's already been sealed in the books of heaven. And that life becomes a reality in your life when you receive it through the Holy Spirit. That's called imparted righteousness. It's called sanctification. So we love Jesus because he first loved us. We have faith in him because he first had faith in us. And we forgive others because he first forgave us. This is what the gospel's meant to do. Let's pray. God in heaven, I thank you that the gospel is not too good to be true It's too true to be ignored. But it fights against the the natural inclination of our flesh. We don't like it. We would prefer that the order of events worked much differently than the way that you've shown it in Scripture this morning. And this is just a brief synopsis, Lord. More time should have been afforded, but it's what we have. But I pray that this would encourage us, that you have made complete provision for my healing, my cleansing, my forgiveness, and the victory you want in my life. It's already secured in Jesus. And I pray that we would walk in that. This is not leading people to think that victory doesn't matter. It's showing us that victory is actually possible. Because when the weight's on me, it seems impossible. And it is impossible. But when I have an all-sufficient Savior who's made complete provision, and I can receive His victory, everything changes. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would believe that this morning, that we would walk in that this morning, and that the true gospel of Christ our righteousness would leaven the lump of our lives. It would cast out the lies in our flesh and that we would be free indeed. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.com.
www.thepeopleofgod.org.